0: 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're we'll going to be going through the whole chapter together. Normally, I have the scripture up on overheads. We didn't get that today, but if you will, please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll be going through the whole chapter. If you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody beside you. If you have a smartphone app, um, cut off all your phone functions, but go ahead and open up your, your smartphone Bible and um, share that with somebody as well. 1 Samuel 15. We'll be reading that in a moment. wanted to give you a quick update, though. Um, we are contractually set to close on the building for Abundant Life Church on January 8th. Just want to let everybody know that and wanted to, we are excited about that. It'll be wonderful to have a full-time permanent facility. Um, it doesn't mean we're going to move in just that Sunday, but we want to move in as quickly as possible. There is some work to be done though in the building, and so this is where you come into play, um. Every member doing their part helps the body be built up. In this case, physically, it helps the, the place for our body to meet to be built up. Um, so we could use help from people who have various giftings or abilities or talents. And some of the different places we need people people with different skills. If you are, are good with swinging a hammer um, and you know how to maybe put up some temporary walls or things like that, if you are gifted with decoration, not just you think you are or you were 20 years ago, but people actually tell you you really are gifted with decoration, not just your mom. So, um, but if you have if you have a gift of decoration, that's not me. We need people like you. So we would love for folks who are gifted in decoration, or maybe you're gifted in painting, or. Um, other kinds of things, and hospitality, figuring out building layout, organization. If you're good at organizing things, we're going to need help organizing. Where does all of our stuff go from the storage unit? Where, where do we fit everything? Um, if you're good in any of those areas, electronics, AV setup, um, those are some of the various ways that we need your help. So if you're good in any of those ways, please let Katie know this week. Email her at katie, K-A-T-I-E, at rgcsc.org. Email her this week. Let her know, hey, i'm i have some skills abilities in these areas i'd be willing to serve and as quickly as possible we'll begin planning that way oh also if you're good at duct work or hvac or things like that those are some of the various things that we need help with and as soon as we get as much help as we need we can move in the building as quickly as possible i'm hoping it'll only be a couple weeks after our close date Um, lord willing But um, that really depends on on what kind of help we get. So the more help, the better. Um, Any free time you have, we would love to be able to move in as quickly as we can. Um, In February, we are planning, I think it's February, maybe it's the end of January. January 31st, thank you. We are planning to have a progressive dinner, and it's going to end at the church building. So Lord willing, that will be there. Um, Prior to that, though, um, we're going to have the very first Sunday after we close. We can't be in the building, but after church... We're going to have a time where bring your lunch or plan to pick up McDonald's right there on the corner of 14 and Woodruff Road, or for other people, there's a fresh market on the way. But um, um, on Sunday, January 10th, what we're going to do is we're going to have a building walkthrough for everybody. So, Sunday, January 10th, building walkthrough for everybody. And, and that's intended so that um, we can all see the building, see what's needed, see what kind of repairs we are, 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 are needing to be done, and then so we can get a vision for the building. So plan Sunday, January 10th, we're going to have a building walkthrough, and then we're just going to have a community kind of lunch right there at the building. We're going to picnic inside the building. So bring your lunch with you right after church, January 10th, and then, Lord willing, by the 31st, um, or no later, that will be our first formal meeting in the building. So um, I'm, I'm excited. Are you guys excited about that? Oh, yeah. Excellent. It's a huge answer to prayer, both financially and that we even found a building. And so we're just excited in many different ways to have a permanent facility. Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15, reading verses 1 through 35. This is the story really of the beginning of the end of Saul's reign as king he has he has disobeyed god and because he rejects god through his disobedience god rejects him so let's let's read this and hear what god has for us from his holy inspired word and samuel said to saul the lord sent me to anoint you king over this people israel now therefore listen to the words of the lord Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul... And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "'Blessed be you to the Lord. "'I have performed the commandment of the Lord.' And Samuel said, "'What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears "'and the lowing of the oxen that I hear?' Saul said, "'They have brought them from the Amalekites, "'for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen "'to sacrifice to the Lord your God, "'and the rest we've devoted to destruction.'" Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then? Did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek and I, I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams." For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor who is better than you. And also the Lord of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, So shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. God, thank you for this account of of what kind of obedience you require. God, thank you for sobering accounts like this that help us see, Lord, the obedience that's required of of those you have chosen. And God, I pray, though, that we would see in this account, Lord, we would see hope in you. God, Lord, I pray that we would see In your wrath, God, we would see comfort as well. And God, ultimately, I pray that we would look and see our true and righteous king, not the king like Saul, not our other leaders, not even our own failures, but God, I pray we would look up and see your king who has never failed. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, every parent, every child innately knows at some point in their lives, whether or not you suppress it or ignore it or eventually become convinced that you, know, you don't sin, you, you don't disobey. Every parent, every child knows what disobedience means, right? And every parent, every child knows that partial obedience is not really obedience. It's disobedience. When I, when I tell my kids, this is a frequent occurrence. I won't give names because this was me too when I was a kid, right? I think we can all identify with this. When I tell my kids, hey, go and clean up your room. And I come back a couple hours later, and yet there's still stuffed animals all over the floor. and I say, "What? what's going on? Hey, hey, you know, unknown child, come to this room. And, and what's going on? And why are there stuffed animals all over the floor still? And they say, well, I, I picked my room up. But that But they belong there. You know, they but they belong there. And and they 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 claim partial obedience. I said, Do you really think they belong there? No, I'm sorry. And they hang their heads and they realize that they've really disobeyed, but they've made excuses for partial obedience. You know, whenever I talk to one of my children about needing to forgive a sibling, maybe they've had a conflict and we reconcile, say, you know, God calls us to forgive from the heart because we've been forgiven of everything. God calls us to forgive from the heart and that child says, okay, I'm sorry. And we know that that's not really obedience from the heart. That's not really a heartfelt apology. You know, the rolling eyes, I'm sorry, really, I'm sorry. You know, and that's kind of us too at times, right? When I'm, when I'm convicted of being angry with my spouse and yeah, I, I, I do that. When I'm being angry or harsh with my kids, it just, it just happened this week. This happened Friday night. We were preparing for uh, a holy meeting for youth and to have all the youth over, and I was impatient and angry. And so, um, you know, in, in my heart, I knew I was wrong, but I didn't really want to say I'm sorry. And so often, our apologies and our performance and our obedience isn't really obedience from the heart. And, and what this passage is here for in Scripture is to show us the kind of obedience that God requires the kind of obedience that God desires. And and this passage is meant for us to see that, that only complete obedience from the heart is accepted by God. Now, if you're hearing that, you're thinking, whoa, that's a challenge. And we're gonna get to that later on towards the end. But only complete obedience. This is what really the message of this passage, but all throughout scripture we can see that only complete obedience from the heart is accepted by God. And so then we have a dilemma, right? Because which one of us has completely obeyed from the heart? Completely, all the time. And yet God gives us this account to show that his chosen ones are to obey completely from the heart. You see, the Bible is God's word and is given for us to understand who we are and who God is and how we're supposed to relate to God. In the very beginning, God He set up a perfect world and and he created this perfect world for us to enjoy and for Adam and Eve to enjoy. They had everything they ever wanted and he only gave them one command, one command to obey and that obedience was actually for their good and yet Adam and Eve took it upon themselves to think that they knew best. They presumed, they arrogantly presumed to best understand and know how to carry out what God had said in their own way, which is really not obedience at all. And then the storyline of the Bible, it reveals, all th- ever since Adam and Eve and their disobedience, it reveals our need to obey God, or our need to be reconciled to God. And that reconciliation to God can only occur through obedience. And yet, you see, time after time, mankind has a struggle throughout the Old Testament where God calls man- mankind to obedience, and yet man fails to obey And God extends mercy, and yet man fails to obey. And God extends more mercy, and yet man fails to obey. And the Bible reveals humankind's utter inability to save ourselves. Even after given chance after chance, it reveals that we are all ultimately unfaithful, unable, and desperate for being redeemed. And so by the time you get to this story, this account, the the people in the Old Testament are thinking, well, maybe this king, maybe he will be the one who will redeem God's people by being obedient, by being faithful. He's the chosen one after all. And that's what God intended for Saul. And yet we see this saga of God's redemptive purposes being played out over the millennia. And all along, the details for how this promised redemption of all the nations will come about, it unfolds. And and you see, throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's Israel's story about God's chosen people, but really it's our story, everyone's story. It's the Gentile story as well, because it's the story of God's purpose to redeem all of mankind through his chosen one, his anointed king. That's who Saul was called to be, and yet humanity on their own, and a king of our own making, can never, never rescue, never redeem. And so through the story, we're meant to see that it's not an earthly kind of king. What are we celebrating this Advent season? It's not an earthly kind of king. And we're meant to see that we need God's king who will obey God fully. To redeem us. And so, this account we have of Saul, it's, it's one of making clear that a king of our own choosing is not what we need. And maybe this morning you're thinking that you're going you're gonna to attain some kind of righteousness or some kind of goodness on your own. Maybe through philanthropy. Maybe you're especially in a, in a mood of giving this holiday season, as so many people are wont to do. And yet, we can see that, that no, a king of our own choosing is, is not what we need. And through this contrast, this negative contrast is gonna be set up, this whole passage, we're gonna see what kind of king that God intends and what kind of king humanity really needs. At the very outset, we can see that God intends for his king to listen to his words. That's the first idea that's emphasized plainly in this passage, is that, that God's chosen one, his king, is called to listen to his words. That's what he calls Saul to do through Samuel. Samuel comes in at the very beginning, he says, Saul... I anointed you, king, for you to listen to God's words. It's no light responsibility, no small task, this, this calling to listen to God's words. And so Samuel tells Saul, this is a big deal. God anointed you to lead the people, to be the chosen one. So listen to the words of the Lord. And so he's saying, listen. And remember the last time we encountered Saul in chapter 14, what was he doing? Who was he listening to? He wasn't listening to God In chapter 14, Saul is listening to the people's will, the people's voice. So Samuel comes and says, I've anointed you to be king. Don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember who I've called you to be? Now listen to the words of the Lord. It's important for us to get that the kind of king God chooses is to be guided by God's word and to listen to God's word. It's important for us because God intends for his king to lead his people by listening to God's words himself. And if we have any hope for following God, that hope is found in following God's king who listens to God's words. Whenever we live in a way that ignores God's words, it leads to lots of trouble. It leads to lots of pain, lots of heartache. And God's people need a king who will lead them by listening to God's words. And, and this theme of speaking, of God speaking, is all throughout the chapter. And in, in verse 2, Look down your Bible, it says the Lord of Hosts says. In verse 10 and 11, it says the word of the Lord came to Samuel and again God speaks. In verses 16 and 17 and 18 and 19, it's all about God speaking and what God said. And One of the key things that God desired to accomplish through his king was to obey. In verse 20, Saul claims to have obeyed. Verse 22, Samuel reminds Saul that religious observance doesn't mean much. Religious observance doesn't mean much if you're not really gonna obey from the heart. Who cares what you do externally? Who cares what you look like? Who cares what kind of, you know, how loudly you sing or how high you raise your hands? If you're not obeying from the heart during the week. Verse 23, Samuel tells Saul the consequences for rebellion against what? Against God's words. God takes his words very seriously. He takes obedience to his word very seriously. In verse 24, Samuel acknowledges disobeying God's commandment, obeying voice of the people. And then in verse 28 and 29, we see the pronouncement of God's judgment for what? For disobedience to his word. This whole passage really is all about the fact that God's chosen one is to obey his word. The chapter ends with the Lord regretting that he made Saul king, and in this context is clear that God feels this way because his king has failed to listen or to obey his word. Now, look down in verse two. We're going to see that one of the functions that God intends for his chosen king is to execute. Judgment. That's the particular thing that God's king was called to do. God's king was called to execute God's judgment. God's king was called to execute judgment. Why? Because this reveals part of God's character's nature, that that God takes vengeance on the disobedient. And that's what we're meant to see. We're meant to see, the second main idea we're going to see is that God takes vengeance on the disobedient. He says that God took note of what Amalek and his people did against Israel. When Israel, they had fled Egypt. They had just been set free from slavery. They just come across the Sinai Peninsula. And as soon as they got there, um, Amalek, it tells us in, in Exodus, and then again in Deuteronomy, they came behind them and they picked off all the weak ones. And they surrounded them. They came from behind and they ambushed Israel. And God judged Amalek for being deceitful, for, for lacking honor in, in battle. Um, Israel encountered a lot of people in battle. And it wasn't that, that God um, thought that them battling them was wrong, but, but how they went about they picked off the weak, they picked off the women, the children, the slow, and they were dishonorable. And so in Exodus 17, God told Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So God promised to take vengeance on Amalek 300 years prior to this account in Samuel. In Deuteronomy 25, Moses brought it up again and and he says, remember what Amalek did from you, how he cut off your tail, those lagni behind you. And he says, when you get to the land that God's gonna give you, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Now, that can seem really strange to us in our modern ears, can't it? When you read this account, when you read what God is commanding his chosen king to do, it sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? If not, it should. It should sound pretty awful when he says, Kill them all. Wipe out not only the, the men, but the women, the children, the infants, even their animals. What in the world is going on here? That can sound pretty harsh. It can sound cruel. It can seem ruthless. And if it doesn't raise a question, it should raise a question of how can a God who's slow to anger and rich in mercy judge so severely? How can a loving God pledge you something which seems, I would say seems, so unloving to us? After all, God's the one whose mercies are new every morning, right? But yet God's the one who pronounces that he will utterly blot out Amalek from under heaven. And in verse three, God commands Saul through Samuel to wipe them all out. What a seemingly horrific and what a really horrific judgment this is. He commands them to wipe out everybody, even the babies. That, that's, that's awful, right? God's wrath is terrible. You know, it says, you know, all of us should be aware of God's just wrath. But remember at the very beginning, Adam, God said at the very beginning, when he commanded to Adam, he says, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden because in that day you will die. And ever since man's disobedience, this death sentence was hanging over all of mankind. So none are really, truly innocent. And yet time after time, God extends mercy and grace to humanity and God's justice, though, it demands payment. Payment be made for breaking God's laws and disobeying God's commands. But even more here is going on than just the the wrath that all of humanity deserves, right? Right? You see, God's showing he's always faithful to his promises, and he's also showing something else, something that we need to hope in. Sounds awful. That God will actually take vengeance on those who molest or harm his children. But you see, he is the one who will bring vengeance. God says, Vengeance is mine. This is not a command that's given. Um, To all of God's people, this was a command given to God's chosen one because God's chosen one was meant to carry out God's justice, his vengeance. If you think about it, the justice and wrath of God, it's terrible. It's frightening. We should never rejoice when people receive the justice that's due to them. Why? Because all of us have justice that's due to us. Yet without such justice, there would be no justice at all. If God let all sin go unpunished, God himself would be unjust. The Amalekites had 300 years to repent, and yet we see looking down at verse 18, look down your Bibles, what does he refer to them? He refers to them actively as sinners, those sinners, the Amalekites. They still have not repented. They still have earned their own punishment. It doesn't make it easy to swallow. But you know, we all deserve the death that God commanded against the Amalekites, against Adam, apart from receiving his grace and forgiveness. There's only one way that any of us can avoid receiving this same wrath, and that's by trusting God, looking to his true king to deliver. And yet, at the same time, there's hope here, because God does take vengeance. But unless we think we're given the same kind of authority or command as God's king, let's remember that this is God, the Holy One, making this command to his chosen king. This is not God giving this command to everybody to decide on their own who deserves punishment, what justice looks like. And right now, this is especially poignant for us. If you've been paying attention to the news this past week, you remember the terrorist attack that just happened in San Bernardino, California, where 14 people were slaughtered by those who were actually persecuting people who placed their faith in and God happened to be Jewish synagogue, Jewish people, Jewish Christmas party they had attacked. And if you remember the terrorists in Paris last month. So what do we do though when we encounter the likes of ISIS or Boko Haram or Islamic terrorism? I'm not, I'm not gonna get into the question of how is our government supposed to respond? That's, that's for another time that, that God actually addresses and said the government is there to wield the sword. But. But this is really meant for us. How are we to respond? This isn't talking about self-defense. This is how are we as individuals called to respond to those who persecute us as Christians? Are we to take up arms and pursue them? Are we supposed to decide what justice looks like ourselves? Are we supposed to carry it ourselves? Well, scripture's clear. This is a command given to only God's anointed and is from God himself. That's the only one to whom a command of vengeance belongs is God's anointed one. This is scripture's clear. The answer is plain. Other places in Scripture expound. Scripture talks about our attitude and actions and how, whether or not we should avenge ourselves. In Romans 12, you can flip over in your Bible there if you'd like. You don't have to. I'll read it for you. But Romans 12, verses 14, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the, the, the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament prophet, he says, bless those who persecute you. What? Bless those who persecute you? Bless and do not curse them. So how could God call down vengeance on the Amalekites, and yet God calls us to bless those who persecute us and don't curse them? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Here's what he says. Repay no one evil for evil. No one. So this is not a command given to us in the Old Testament. This is not a command given to people generally. God says to us, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, here's a hard and fast word Never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Oh, that's what's going on in 1 Samuel. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, he says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what we have going on in 1 Samuel is God repaying vengeance through his anointed one. And he says, to the contrary, if if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for so by doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This message in 1 Samuel is it's not meant for us to take this as ourselves. It's meant for to say, oh, this is God and us seeing God's awful vengeance being carried out through his anointed one, but it's also meant to show us that it's really only God and only his anointed one that carries us out. At the same time, there was hope in God's vengeance. There's hope in God's vengeance that, like those the Israelites, they trusted in God to take vengeance. God's people have always hoped in that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is hard, but it's also our comfort. It's also our hope. And you think about in Isaiah 61.1, you can write that down. In Isaiah 61.1, it's a prophecy It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah and what the coming Messiah would do, what the coming true chosen one would do. In Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. You get that anointed language? To bring good news to the poor. Oh, that's good news, right? He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. We can rejoice in that part of the gospel to proclaim liberty to the captives, to opening the prison to those who are bound. And all those things, yes and amen, we can all rejoice. We have liberty to bind the brokenhearted, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's actually part of the gospel message as well. God wants to deliver and bring freedom and liberty and bind up those who, are, who, who, have, who have been broken hearted and release those who are bound and yet proclaim God's favor and at the same time we can trust in God to bring vengeance and that's comfort for those of us who mourn. The good news for God's people is deliverance and liberty and freedom and God's favor is also a day where God delivers his his vengeance and comforts all who mourn. You know, Jesus, he quoted that exact passage. He, He just left off the vengeance part because when he came the first time, he wasn't coming to bring vengeance. But in Revelation, when it talks about the lamb coming back, there's vengeance, there's God's wrath being poured out like a bowl on the earth. And in Christian, as horrible as that is, that's also our comfort. And so our motivation is to to go and say, no one, no matter how bad they are, should ever experience that wrath. And our goal as Christians is to help spare even our enemies from that wrath by preaching the good news to them, because we know that it's coming through his anointed one one day. So in Samuel, we see that God is being faithful, and that should give us hope, and it also should terrify us and motivate us. He's being faithful to his promise and his desires to use his anointed king to carry out his justice. And at first, it seems like Saul's gonna do that. But the idea of this passage, the third idea that this passage shows us is that partial obedience is disobedience. You think Saul's going to obey. It looks like he's about to obey, right? And, and it, he starts off doing that. But we see that partial obedience is really disobedience. Obedience from the heart is what matters. Look down at verses four and five. Saul musters this huge army, 220,000 people. That's a lot of people, right? You can just imagine that in your mind's eye. 220,000 people and 10,000 people from Judah, and they all kind of muster. Then in verse seven, he says, he defeats the Amalekites massively. They defeated them all the way from the border of the Persian Gulf, in case you're wondering where these places are, Havilah and, and Shur. Havilah is over on the, the border of the Persian, Persian Gulf, and you have this, this peninsula where Saudi Arabia kind of is now. They go from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is right across the Red Sea, border with Egypt. It's a huge area. Saul, it must have taken a long time to go through that. We have it condensed here that he defeats the Amalekites and wipes them out. It it probably took months to go in that campaign. And so, you know, Saul and the people were fighting hard. They went to this huge place. But as hard as they were fighting, they were not fully obedient In verse 7, he defeats the Amalekites. In verse 8, we see that Saul, though, he's not a faithful king. He doesn't carry out God's word fully. He doesn't deliver justice. In verse 9, we read that that Saul spared not only Agag, the king, but he spares the best of the sheep, the oxen, and and the best of the lambs. And then look down in your Bibles in verse 9. There's this other little statement. It says, and all that was good. So that's kind of this this foreshadowing It tells us, wait a minute, Saul, in a moment, he's going to tell us that the people spared the the oxen and the sheep, they just did that so they could sacrifice, but that's not true because all that was good in addition to the sheep and the cattle and the oxen, he spared all that was good. That implies material possessions and wealth and things like gold or treasure. Now, that's key to determining what Saul's true motive was. They spared all that was good. Not only did they not carry out what God said, even if they were kind of, fooling themselves to think that oh yeah we'll save the animals but that's really for God right you know I I remember this one time in my life where I was tested where uh, I was I was had the choice of do I do I stay in business or do I go and pursue studying God's word um, with a goal of responding to God's call to go into ministry I didn't really want to to begin with because I was tempted by deceitfulness of riches and I thought you know what no I'll just work for a few more years and save us some money and then then I'll go into ministry and maybe that sounds good and plausible but what I really was doing is fooling myself I was making excuses for why I wasn't going to obey God, and yet God convicted me. And Saul here is kind of doing the same thing. He's, he's kind of making excuses. In verses 10 and 11, though, we see the results of Saul not delivering God's justice. God responds, he declares to Samuel that he regrets. He regrets, he's sorry that he made Saul king because he turned back from following God and, and did not perform God's commandments. And Samuel accepts God's judgment. Verse 11 says, Samuel's angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. We don't know exactly why he was angry, but no matter the reason, Samuel wasn't gloating. He was angry, but he was also sad. It says he cried out to the Lord all night. In verse 12, look down your Bibles. tells us he went out to meet Saul as soon as it was morning time. He was probably up all night grieving over Saul's failure Grieving over the consequences that this was not God's faithful king. Yet again, the people had lost hope. And we see this passing mention. It serves as further confirmation that Saul wasn't motivated to worship God. The author writes, looking down at verse 12, it says, Saul, he set up a monument. It doesn't say for God. It says, look down in your Bible, it says, set up a monument for himself. Ooh. And he turned and he passed on and went down to Gilgal. What was the first thing he did if he was really trying to sacrifice to God, really trying to be obedient? He would have sacrificed to God to begin with. But what did he do? He sacrificed, he set up a monument to himself. That's so often what we do through our half-hearted obedience, right? We, we set up a monument to ourselves. We fool ourselves. We, yes. we act like we're obeying God even when we're half-heartedly, halfway obeying God. And, and, we, and we really honor ourselves instead of honoring God. Saul was playing fast and loose, almost obeying, but in the process, serving his own desires and, and justifying this halfway obedience. And we think, you can see that Saul was pretty pleased with himself, or at least he was pretending to be, right? Look down at verse 13. Look down your Bibles verse 13. What does Saul, how does Saul respond when he sees Samuel's coming out? And he had to have known in his heart. Okay, Samuel's the prophet. Samuel probably knows, so Saul's trying to play it off. And he goes, hey, blessed be to you to the Lord. I performed the command of the Lord, right? Hey, look what I did. I did pretty good, didn't I? And in some respects, he did. He worked hard. He fought for months probably to conquer the people, but Samuel's not buying it. Samuel says, really? Kind of like when I go to my room and I say, really? Kids, you, you clean this, really? What are these sheep and ox on the floor? You know, the stuffed ones at least. Samuel's not buying it. He says, really, if you obey, then why do I hear a bunch of sheep? Why do I hear the ox making noise? And like Adam did, that first ruler or king of the earth. Do you know that's what Adam was intended to be? When he says take dominion, what's that word mean? That's to have a kingly rule, okay? So God, his first king, failed. Now God's first king of his covenant people has failed. And what did God's first king and what does Samuel, I mean what does Saul do now as God's king of his people? He doesn't take responsibility. He blame shifts immediately. Right? And isn't that our temptation? Before we think of Saul too lowly, let's take pause and think what is our first response when we are convicted, when somebody brings us something, our first response is to blame shift, to excuse, right? And that's what Saul does. He says, if you really, 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 um, it wasn't me, it was the people. They did it. They took the sheep. They took the oxen. They spared the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's a ticket. he kind of makes this excuse. He says, yeah, yeah, they did it so they could sacrifice the Lord, your God. Right? But there's also a key there. He says, your God, repeatedly. He doesn't say, my God, or our God. And then Saul lies, and he says, but the rest we devoted to destruction. Remember that earlier part where it says, and he spared all that was good? So he lies, and he covers up, and it's one of those uh uh-oh moments, you know? Uh Uh-oh, he's in trouble. Like when one of my kids, and I, confront them and say, really? And their face kind of gets dark and you can kind of read their expression and they're like, uh-oh, it's coming. It's, it's like my kids forget that I have eyes and that I was once a kid and disobeyed and I tried to cover up my own sin and they forget that I, I too once made excuses and still do make excuses for sin so it's easy for me to see. And so Samuel is kind of like that and Saul's like this little kid and Samuel is fed up though and he doesn't let Saul keep lying. He says, stop! Stop it, stop lying, quit it. Only, the only thing you're doing is digging yourself even deeper. You're making justification. Quit it. Don't compound your sin by lying. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said, you've acted like it's a small thing. When he says you were small in your own eyes, it doesn't mean Saul was being humble. What he was saying was, you took your position as a small thing. You didn't take the responsibility God had given to you as serious, And you saw that as a small light thing that that God had anointed you as the king over Israel. And and maybe for, for me at times and for you, maybe I can take it as a small thing, my responsibility as a father or my responsibility as a husband or my responsibility as a Christian. And I can ignore and treat those things smallly too. See, we're not very different from Saul. He says, you, you you've saw this as small, and yet God anointed you and put you in a position with responsibility, and you did not, did not take the responsibility he had given you. You didn't carry out God-given, your God-given mission. You didn't carry out God's justice faithfully. And Samuel says, you pounced on the spoil. But that's an easy thing for us to do as well, isn't it? We can be tempted subtly. You know, it's easy for us to condemn Saul and think, oh, how could Saul do that? It wasn't the command of God very clear. Yes. Isn't the command of God very clear to each and every one of us? When it says love your neighbor better than yourself, when it says husbands, love your wives, when it says children, obey your parents, aren't those commands very clear? When God commands for us not to withhold the things of God from God and to to give to the Lord what is his, when you lie or cheat on your tax return and don't declare all of your income and your, what you get in cash because you want to keep more money and you justify it because you don't agree with it or you don't agree with the government or because everybody else does it? Isn't that the same thing? Isn't that counting your who God called you to be as small? Maybe instead of giving to the poor or giving to those in need or giving to the church, maybe you make excuses for why you spend your money on yourself instead of giving to the things of the Lord. Instead of obeying the principle, providing for the church, or you keep some of the spoils, provide for yourself. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm tempted this way myself. I'm tempted in a hundred ways to, to justify. You know, boy, we could have, have some more stuff. I could, I could give more generously to my kids and my family if I just give a little less. If I just shave back my giving for a while, you know, maybe the New Testament doesn't command it anyway, really, because, you know, the tithe is really an Old Testament thing but I ignore the fact that really it's a principle that's meant to evaluate my heart. Where's my heart for God? And do I give God the first of all that I have? And I'm tempted to do that in a hundred small ways where God's given me much. I try to justify my own stinginess. And it's almost comical, almost. Sometimes it is kind of comical. You know, I, when, I, when it comes to something good, like maybe somebody gives me some dark chocolate with raspberry or something like that. And it's something I like. You know, those little girly chocolate squares, the raspberry filling. If you've never had one, they're glorious. You know, they're, they're wonderful. And I get a bag of them. And one of my kids asks for them. And I'm tempted to think, no, this isn't good for you. Too much sugar. <laughs> you know, but what it is, is just my stinginess. You know, or I'm thinking, no, no, you don't, you don't need all those empty calories like I do, you know, with a spare tire. They can eat twice the calories I do and never gain weight. And yet, no, 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 you don't, you don't need those empty calories. Daddy needs those. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm scooping ice cream, you know, oh, who of us isn't tempted, we're like, when we're scooping out dessert to, to secretly be looking at who has the larger portion, you know, and then, you know, carrying those bowls of ice cream, Paul Tripp, this illustration, I've had that many times in my own life, you know, I scoop out, maybe, maybe you know, we, my wife and I are sitting up watching a movie, I'll go down and get some ice cream or something good, and, and I'll get it and I'll be, be looking at the bowls of ice cream, okay, this one's a little better, okay, maybe this one, hey babe, here, you want this one, you know, And we can justify our own desire to keep to ourselves to to not love other people as better than us. And it's it's really small, simple ways like that, but it's also seen all throughout our lives. So before you judge Saul too quickly, let's see our own hearts. Are we obeying God from the heart? Saul was given this great responsibility of being God's chosen king, and he disobeyed. And he he was confronted, and he blame shifted, and he tries to justify it in verse 20. And then... He tries to say, "Well, you know, I I, saved, I only saved Agag because that's the customary thing to do." But God didn't give him that liberty. He justifies his disobedience, and he says, "Well, I tried—I was going to worship God, and I was going to make some sacrifices." But then, in verse twenty-two and twenty-three, Saul gives Samuel—I mean, Samuel gives Saul and all of God's people a profound guiding principle. Look down your Bibles. This is a profound guiding principle for all of God's people. What does it say in verse twenty-two? He said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice or better than than worshiping, you know? He doesn't say worshiping's bad, but to obey is better than externally worshiping and to listen, to obey, than to give your best supposedly or what looks like your best. To dress up in your Sunday best but not obey God from the heart. Saul here is intentionally rebelling by halfway obedience. And he says, it's as serious as following after other gods. It's as serious as seeking other gods to lead you. It's as serious as idolatry. Half hearted, halfway obedience is like you're worshiping your own will, worshiping other gods instead of worshiping God. It's like when I was a young man and I would go to a party and I would get drunk on Friday night, but supposedly I repent on Sunday morning and play the drums in the church worship band. And then Friday night, do the same thing over and over again, right? It wasn't obedience from the heart. It was a pretense of worship, a pretense of sacrifice. That's why, worship, that's why Scripture tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says you know that, that saying no to our bodies, basically, is, is our spiritual act of worship. Worship is, is saying no to our own desires and saying yes to what God desires, in my heart, I, I try to justify my sin and, and I wasn't willing back then to do whatever it took to stop falling after my own desires. Jesus said, if, you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Take seriously obedience from the heart. Don't justify it. You know, back in way back when, for those of you who are a little older than 40, um, in 1978, a Christian musician named Keith Green, he sang a song. I had Samuel's correction of Saul as part of the lyrics. He sang, to obey is better than sacrifice. I'm sorry if I just put that tune in your head for those who are a little older. He says, I don't need your money. I want your life. That doesn't mean that God's not pleased with sacrifices and money and giving and, and coming on Sunday and Wednesday nights, but God wants obedience from the heart. He says, I hear you saying I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sunday and Wednesday nights. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not prayers of ice. God wants everybody who reads this story to see that playing around with God and pretending to obey him and keeping external appearances of religion is not enough. And it actually is rejection of God. And God will reject you if you're hoping in your own obedience like this, like Saul, and you're seeing yourself as the judge of what is right for Saul is the king, the consequence, God rejected him from being king because he did not accept God's word and he rejected God. And so we we see this fourth principle in display: this, this that disobedience results in rejection. Disobedience is actually rejection of God's will, of his authority. Verses 24 and 25. You think, oh, wait a minute, Saul, Saul repents, doesn't he? He says, I've sinned, I've transgressed the Lord and your words. I I did it because I fear the people. Oh gosh, now he's excusing his sin even in his supposed repentance. I, I did it because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice instead of God as if that's excusable. And then if he stopped there, you might think he's repentant, but here's what he's doing. He's treating it like it's not a big deal. Samuel just told him, you've been rejected by God? And he says, I'm sorry, now go back with me and we'll act like everything's okay. It really wasn't a big deal to him. Samuel, he, he says, you know, he simply says, hello, did you hear me? Look, look down in, in, in verse 26 to 28, and he says, the Lord rejected you from being king because you rejected him by rejecting his word. I'm not going to go back with you and pretend like everything's okay. And he turns to go away, but Saul was desperate for Samuel to help him keep up appearances, and he seizes his robe and when he did it at Tor, and Samuel looks at the torn robe and says, just like this Lord, this robe is torn, so the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. He's given it to a neighbor, is better than you. Look down at verse 29, it says, in the Lord, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he's not a man they should have regret. Now, hang on, because didn't it just say earlier that God regretted? It's the same word. In, in the Hebrew, it's actually the same word in the Hebrew, not just in English. It could seem confusing. The author's not confused. They didn't forget what he just written and what he's gonna write again in verse 29. Verse 11, he said, I regret I made Saul king. What, what is that? That's actually hopeful for us to hear that God is sorrowful. He regrets, not in the sense that he did something wrong, but he is sorry because Saul has disobeyed. He is sorry that he made Saul king. Saul wasn't destined to disobey but he is, God has is, experienced his sadness and sorrow. He is not nonchalant over sin. God's not distant. He's not nonchalant. He's not, he's, he's not ambivalent. God regretted he made Saul king in the sense that he's grieving over the sin of his people. He's not dispassionate. He's, he's sorry. Now Samuel uses the same word, which can mean repent, and he says, but, but God, although God is sorry, God has nothing to repent of. And God's not going to go back on his word. But God said, You've been rejected as king. You really will be rejected. God's not lying. And where Samuel wasn't faithful, Saul wasn't faithful, Samuel then we see the prophet, God's word on the earth, carrying out God's word. He brings justice, which Saul should have done. The last thing we're going to see in this account, though, it ends kind of darkly, doesn't it? Look down in verse, was it, 33, 34, 35. So 33, he carries out justice. He hacks Agag to pieces. And then in verse 34, Samuel goes off to his city in Ramah and Saul goes to his house in Gibeah. And this is sad. Why? Because God's word departs from God's chosen one. He no longer has God's word to guide him. What a dark place that is. When we pursue our own ways and pursue disobedience, we can get to the place where God will withhold his word from us so we're no longer experience that conviction, it says Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. There's sadness here, there's sadness here. Disobedience is grievous. Not only does Samuel grieve, look in the, in the last words there, it says the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God was sorry that Saul disobeyed. Disobedience makes God's heart sad. In in this passage, it leads us, and it's meant to lead God's people to see the necessity of obedience. It's meant for us to see the necessity of obedience. And it's meant to sober us to see the consequences for disobedience on the Amalekites. And on even Saul. It's meant to actually make us sad when disobedience occurs, when we disobey, when God's people don't obey. It's sad to see the disobedience in the world. It's meant to make us see that only complete obedience in the heart is accepted by God. And it's meant to make us see that then we're all in trouble, right? If we're to be judged on our own, then we would be judged like Saul and we would be in trouble. God wants all of us to see that. We have to see the righteous demand of, of a complete obedience from the heart and also what disobedience brings. And then we have to see that God's people have always perpetually disobeyed and constantly been in need for deliverance from God's wrath. Half-hearted obedience to God, it's rejected. And all of us, on our own, we rightly face rejection from God on our own. Because in our own disobedience, we've rejected Him. But then we must not stop there. We don't stop reading the Old Testament. We always read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Accounts like this are meant to humble us. They're meant to, to, to show us who we are. They're meant for us to to grieve, to repent of our sin, but then they're made to do something else. You see, Samuel gave a promise. He said the kingdom will be given to someone that is better than you. And it's somebody who's better than David. And it's somebody who's better than you and better than me. The kingdom has been given to the someone, the son of God. That's where the Israelites were looked and pointed. They're pointed to hope and the someone who would be better than Saul and we are called to hope and the someone who is better than us and Saul and any other ruler. We're called to look to the true king, the chosen son of God whom we celebrate this Christmas season. We're to look to his complete obedience and this obedience that Jesus, he came to earth, he humbled himself, he submitted himself to God, he obeyed perfectly, even to the point of death, the most humiliating death on a cross. Why? So that all those who have disobeyed can put their hope, their trust in the better king. Ironically, it was Jesus's complete obedience to God that got him killed for us. When we read of Jesus this Christmas season, he says he was despised, he was rejected by men. You see, we rejected God. We rejected Jesus so that all of our punishment then is placed on Jesus and God turns his face away on Jesus when he died on the cross. He he said, my presence can't bear any sin. All of my wrath, all of my punishment is gonna be poured out on Jesus so that all who place their faith and their hope, every one of us in this room Everyone who's a part of ISIS or any other evil you can think of can place their faith and their hope in the one who was rejected so that we can be accepted, this better king. And we must look to the true king, the chosen son of God we celebrate, and look to his complete obedience and look to his obedience for our hope. No earthly king, no deliverance, no God we set up on our own can save us you remember in Hebrews ten, we'll, we'll close with this, this this verse here in Hebrews ten, verse five. Jesus it said of Jesus, "Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired." That's what this is talking about. This passage in Samuel. It's not externally. It's not external sacrifice and offerings. It says sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said behold I have come to do your will O God as is written of me in the scroll of the book. And because Jesus perfectly the king the chosen one who was meant to carry out God's will because he's done that we have hope. He's a perfectly obedient king where Adam blame shifted where Saul blame shifted where we blame shift Jesus took the blame. He he took the blame that he did not deserve. We don't even take the blame we do deserve. And he took the blame he did not deserve and he was faithful to the end. In the garden, he was praying what a perfect picture this is. He says, God, if there's any way that this this vengeance, this wrath can pass from me, let it, but nevertheless not what? Not my will, but yours. He did all that as our faithful king so that we might be truly rescued and redeemed from all our enemies. And then We have hope that this chosen king will one day, he will redeem all things. He will return. He will come back. And we can trust in him that he will carry out vengeance on those who deserve it. But in the meanwhile, it's all calling to follow him in joy and love and say, Jesus, because you've given it all, God, I want to offer my life as a living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing and acceptable to you. And Jesus Because I deserve wrath, I want to go and tell everybody I know of the way that they can avoid the wrath that we all deserve. Amen?